When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This episode contains details of graphic violence and sexual assault against children. Please take care where and when you listen. It's a November evening in 2002. 61-year-old Nathaniel Jones is found unconscious outside his home in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He's on the floor of his carport, bloodied and beaten up. His hands are bound behind his back with black tape. There's also a piece of tape over his mouth. A neighbor calls 911. Paramedics arrive and attempt to revive him, but Mr. Jones is already gone. An autopsy later reveals that his heart gave out from the stress of the attack. Jones's death comes at a moment that was meant to be celebratory for his family. Just the day before, his grandson, local high school star athlete Chris Paul, had accepted a full basketball scholarship to Wake Forest University. Yes, that's the same Chris Paul, who is now an all-star point guard in the NBA. Chris was really close to his grandfather, who he and the rest of the family called Papa Chili. The family and law enforcement begin looking for answers. Jones's wallet is missing. Detectives find blood on the concrete floor of the carport and smeared across the driver's side door of his car, indicating a struggle. On the hood of the car, they find two partial shoe prints. Investigators think the perpetrator may have stood on the car to unscrew the bulb in the carport's light. An eyewitness tells police he saw a Hispanic man running away from Jones's house around the time of the crime. Four days later, according to police reports, a woman named Arlene Tolliver calls a detective she knows with a tip. Her 15-year-old son, Jermal, might know who is responsible. To the police, Jermal initially denies any knowledge or involvement in the murder. But after hours of interrogation, he says he knows what happened and implicates his friends, Christopher Bryant, Darrell Brayboy, and two others named Sean and Nathaniel. 
Rayshon Banner and Nathaniel Cawthon are brothers. When the police show up at their door, Rayshon calls his mother, Teresa Ingram. He called me at work. He said that, Mama, the police is wanting to take us downtown and question us about Mr. Jones. Rayshon refuses to comply, but his older brother Nathaniel goes willingly. Since he had nothing to do with the murder, he isn't concerned. But hours go by, and Nathaniel still isn't home. I'm looking at my watch. Okay, now we're until four and a half hours. Okay, so now I go down to the station there, and the detective came out, and uh, he asked me, did I know Nathaniel Jones, and did I know he had been murdered? And I said, I've seen it on the news. And he said, yeah, your sons are dead smack in the middle of it. Those were the words he used, dead smack in the middle of it. Nathaniel requests and is denied a lie detector test. Later, police pick up Teresa's other son, Ray Sean. All five boys, including Jamal Tolliver, spend about 11 hours at the police station. They are interrogated multiple times, mostly without an adult present. They say the detectives threaten them with the death penalty, specifically lethal injection, for denying their involvement in the crime. The boys also say that they're told they can go home if they only confess. All of them are teenagers, 14 or 15 years old. The U.S. Supreme Court prohibits the execution of anyone who committed a crime at 15 or younger, but lying to a suspect of any age during an interrogation is legal in most states. It's an accepted police tactic. After hours of questioning and wanting to go home, all five agree to confess. Here's part of what Nathaniel told investigators. The quality of this audio isn't great, so it's a little hard to hear. And then you said that everybody was beating him. I believe that was the words out of your mouth, correct? Yeah. And everybody, who all are you talking about when you said everybody? Me, Bubba, the railroad, and that's it. What was the plan? Let me just get some money. Get some money? Yeah. Well, hit him in the head with a pole. Guess so. No, I'm not asking for you to guess. I'm asking you what your answer is. Yes. That's what you told me earlier, correct? Yes. Is that the truth? Yes. But the boys tell conflicting stories. Then, a sixth friend, picked up by police and also interrogated, further implicates them telling police she drove them to Nathaniel Jones's house to commit the crime. By the next morning, all five boys are charged with first-degree murder. Prosecutors have the confessions, but the boys recant them, saying that they were coerced. Here's Rayshon talking about it years later. I just wanted to go. You thought that making up a lie was going to get you home sooner? That's what they told me. Again, Rayshon and Nathaniel's mother, Teresa. The boys have always said that, you know, Mama, they didn't do this. They made us say that. And I questioned that. Why would you confess to something you didn't do? Because we wanted to go home. The state doesn't have any physical evidence. None of the 12 fingerprints found at the scene match any of the five boys. Blood and fibers from the scene don't match them either. Only the two partial footwear impressions made by Nike Air Force Ones from the hood of the car could possibly tie the boys to the scene of the crime. Police find a pair of Nike Air Force Ones, size 9, that belong to Ray Sean. His shoe is believed by investigators to have created the partial impression. 
It's one of the most popular sneakers sold in the U.S. Saying it was worn by a lot of teens at the time is an understatement. Between the footprint and the confessions, all five are found guilty. The brothers sentenced to life in prison. Two decades pass. They're now generally referred to as the Winston-Salem Five. Echoing the case of the Central Park Five, New York City teenagers wrongfully convicted of assault and rape in the late 1980s because their confessions were also coerced. But now, Rayshawn and Nathaniel are getting another chance. Did you kill Nathaniel Jones? No, ma'am. I'm Molly Herman, and this is CSI On Trial. Two or three stains are really not enough to call something an impact spatter from gunshot that's going to put someone in prison the rest of their life. You thought that making up a lie was going to get you home sooner? That's what they told me. What is it about a bite mark that would make a dentist an expert in this area? Sir, did you um, see who shot at you? I did not. He said, I will sit in this jail and I will rot before I take a plea bargain. The problem with forensic science in the criminal legal system today is that it's an awful lot of forensic and not an awful lot of science. Episode 5, Footwear Analysis. The origins of footprints being used as evidence in crimes started with a very young victim. The earliest reference that I'm aware of is a 1786 case that involved the murder of a little girl. And this was over in Scotland. This is John Bird. He's a forensic expert and has analyzed countless shoe prints. The investigator noticed that when the suspect fled, he left footwear impressions in mud, leaving the cottage there, and was able to cast those impressions. Later at the funeral, he was able to take known impressions of the people that showed up at the funeral of this girl, and he ultimately compared those to the casted impressions from the scene and was able to establish the identity of the murderer. By the mid-1980s, footwear evidence was a powerful prosecutorial tool in criminal cases. In fact, the Unabomber, Theodore Kaczynski, even wore shoes with smaller soles attached to the bottom to trick investigators into thinking the person they were looking for had smaller feet. John Bird explains how it all works. So footwear analysis is the examination of footwear evidence, looking at a known impression to a questioned impression and determining if they originated from the same source. It originates typically with the uh, crime scene investigation unit. They are collecting that evidence. Typically those impressions are either visible or they have to be processed in order to capture them. Whether that's done through lifting or photography is dependent upon the type of impression. Meaning if shoe prints or footprints are found at a scene, they can take a photo or lift it by applying materials to the print to capture the impression. Then that can be sent to a lab that's the questioned impression John talked about. When investigators obtain a shoe from a suspect, they call it the known shoe. It's photographed and then processed. So the known shoe is the actual shoe itself. The known standard is created from the known shoe. And that process is we typically powder the bottom of the shoe and then transfer that powder from the bottom of the shoe onto an adhesive contrasting surface. Then we can compare that standard against the questioned image from the scene. 
During the analysis, two types of evaluations are done. The first is called a class characteristic. These are the characteristics that come from the shoe from the manufacturer. Melissa Gigenbach is a law professor and director of the West Virginia Innocence Project. So shoe size, tread, designs, and then different shoes have different um, molds that are made, and each of those molds might have a specific characteristic. So those come from the manufacturing process. These characteristics aren't unique enough to allow the identification of a specific shoe, but they can narrow the field or eliminate a shoe. One of the best examples of class characteristics comes from the O.J. Simpson trial. When bloody shoe prints were found at the scene, an FBI footwear analyst determined they were made by a fancy Italian-designed shoe, a Bruno Magli Lorenzo model. Exhibit 375 are the two shoes, the Line or Leone and the Lorenzo. That size was an American size 12. At the time, only 299 pairs had been sold in the United States. At his criminal trial, Simpson, who wore a size 12, denied owning what he later described as those ugly-ass shoes. But during the civil case, more than 30 newly discovered photos showing him wearing a pair of Bruno Magli Lorenzos were shared with the jury. Footwear evidence was a turning point in the case, and Simpson was found responsible for the murders, at least in the civil trial. In most cases, a class characteristic match is only the first step toward making an identification, says Melissa Gigenbach. If the shoe print or the suspect shoe cannot be eliminated, then they move on to what's called randomly acquired characteristics. And these are things that happen to shoes just for normal wear and tear. So walking around, you might step on a piece of glass or cut the sole of your shoe, a gouge or a nick, or maybe wear patterns. And so then they use that randomly acquired characteristics as a way to try to make a determination about whether the suspect's shoe made the shoe print at the crime scene. These randomly acquired characteristics, or racks, are thought to be unique to an individual's shoe, like a fingerprint. According to the FBI, racks are powerful evidence that can help identify a perpetrator. But if you listen to our Bite Marks episode, you know that other forensic methods make that unique-as-a-fingerprint claim, and it doesn't hold up to rigorous scientific scrutiny. Using racks as evidence in a murder trial almost cost this man his life. I've been 17 and a half years on death row, plus 11 months in the county jail. Twice they read a death warrant on me. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I want you to meet Charles Fane. 
Oh, marvelous. <laughs> Everything's just great. I do have a few memory problems sitting in that cell all that time. You could call Charles an optimist. He's free after spending 18 years in prison, over 17 of those years on death row. He was wrongfully convicted in the 1982 rape and murder of nine-year-old Darylin Johnson. She was walking to school in the morning, didn't make it to school, but at that time there wasn't a reporting system where the school would contact the parents. Rick Visser is an attorney and former director of the Idaho Innocence Project. She didn't come home from school and her mother thought, well, she's playing with friends, didn't make it for dinner, Mother was concerned, made some calls, and they couldn't find her. A search party fanned out across Canyon County, Idaho. Three days later, her body was found near a river. She'd been beaten and raped. The cause of death was drowning. Investigators find two types of physical evidence at the crime scene, some hair and a footprint. But they didn't lead to a suspect. Months later, a tip from a child about a car spotted in the area at the time Darylin went missing led to Charles Fane. He had a similar car, a prior conviction for robbing a laundromat, and his hair color matched the hairs found at the crime scene. I mean, I'm going down to the police station to talk about something. So I went down there and started talking about this murder of this nine-year-old girl, and I gave him some hairs like they asked and left. It was no big deal. I hadn't done nothing. Charles takes a polygraph test and passes. He explains that on the day Darylin disappeared, he was visiting his parents 300 miles away in Oregon. Six weeks later, they call me back down there and say the FBI says the hair matches one found on the victim. He's arrested. The state's theory is that Charles drove 300 miles from Oregon to Idaho, committed the murder, and then drove 300 miles back to his parents' house without having been missed. Two jailhouse informants testify that Charles confessed to them while he was awaiting trial. And then there was the shoe print. The prosecution argues that a shoe belonging to Charles matched the print found at the crime scene. Attorney Rick Visser. When Charles was a suspect, they asked for his shoe and initially they thought, no, it's not there, but something happened where the analyst concluded that his shoe print was similar, and there was a slight impression of a nail on the heel of the one footprint, and therefore he could not be excluded. That nail impression on the shoe, that's an example of a rack, a randomly acquired characteristic. As in, somewhere along the line, Charles randomly stepped on a nail and it left a mark, or characteristic, on the sole of his shoe. Charles said he didn't even purchase those shoes until after the crime had occurred. But this was the 1980s, so of course he'd paid cash. He didn't have a receipt to prove it. A forensic examiner from the FBI testified that the wear and tear on the impression corresponded exactly to Charles's shoe. Despite his alibi, the jury deliberated for 13 hours before finding Charles Fane guilty. Two death sentences and a life without parole. One for kidnapping and one for the murder. And a life without parole for the sexual assault. Let's go back to that rack. Can analysts really identify a slight impression of a nail in a shoe print? 
Third-year law student Eric Lasky got firsthand experience working with shoe prints when he was a forensic science undergraduate. Personally, I have done casting of a shoe print out of mud. And let me tell you, it's not as detailed as it is in the TV shows. And to get individualizing characteristic off a mold is very hit and miss with what you're going to get. A 2020 study revealed that given the same sets of footprints to examine, a significant number of analysts came up with opposite conclusions. Some footwear analysts said a print fully excluded a suspect, while others said it was a full identification. Some analysts may identify a spot in the print as a rack, while others simply chalk it up to an imperfection introduced in the process of making the print. So one examiner may think this bump is a randomly acquired characteristic, and another examiner might not. He may think this could be found day to day on any other shoe, any other person could have made that. There is no objectivity of this right now. Even if identifying a match was reliable and valid, a lot of shoes could have created the same print. There have been attempts to create databases or to calculate the statistical probabilities around the frequency of racks. But the problem is there are a lot of variables. Here's Melissa Gigenbach again, the law professor we heard from earlier. It's unknowable to know if a specific randomly acquired characteristic happens in other shoes. For example, there might be a problem with the rubber on a particular sole of a particular type of shoe, and so the shoe cracks in exactly the same way in every single shoe that was made by that manufacturer in that batch. You don't know that. Charles Fain sat on death row for years. Multiple execution dates were scheduled and then postponed. His mother died while he was in prison. He survived each day, in part, because he found religion. I became a Christian five days after I was arrested. And then a scientific breakthrough in DNA analysis offered new hope. The hairs found at the crime scene had the potential to reveal information about the actual perpetrator. There was now a way to test the hair for DNA that wasn't around when Charles was arrested back in 1983. Attorney Rick Visser. In 2001, both the prosecutor and the Charles federal defense attorney agreed to do the testing. Went out to a lab in Canada. It excluded Charles. Prosecutor's jaw dropped and they had a problem. They said, well, let's do it again. They sent another hair off. Again, it excluded him. Now the prosecutor's next excuse was, well, we have to have a separate lab. So a separate lab was chosen. Third hair excluded Charles. Charles was three for three. Prosecutor made a motion for another uh, lab to do it and the judge denied it, said enough is enough. You need to decide within 60 days to release or retry Charles Fain. Charles heard the judge's decision like everyone else. I was in my room reading the Bible and I had my TV on, but the volume was down. I saw my picture on the television. In 2001, after 18 years, Charles Fain walked free. The DNA evidence also proved that Charles's shoe couldn't have made the print at the crime scene, despite what the FBI analysts testified. 
Even in the face of irrefutable DNA evidence, the prosecutor and judge who sent Charles to death row refused to acknowledge his innocence. But his fate was about to intersect with one of America's leading DNA experts, Dr. Greg Hampikian. I'm a professor of biology and criminal justice. I have a DNA laboratory where we are. I am co-director of the Idaho Innocence Project at Boise State University. In 2004, Greg took an interest in Charles's case. Over the years, he tested DNA samples to see if he could figure out who really raped and killed Daryl and Johnson. Finally, a breakthrough. And lo and behold, some of the hair owner's relatives had contributed to genealogy databases that were available to the police. And uh, they got a last name. They reopened the case. They found a suspect. His name was David Dalrymple. He lived on the route Darylin took to school, and he was already in prison, serving 20 to life for kidnapping and sexually abusing a different child after the murder of Darylin Johnson, a crime that could have been prevented. No surprise to me, the individual is already in prison serving a life sentence for sexual assault of a child. Court order was needed to get his DNA, and it proved that David Darrymple was the true perpetrator and the only perpetrator of the kidnap, rape, and murder of nine-year-old Darylin Johnson. At the time of Charles's release, Idaho did not have a compensation statute. But the media attention surrounding Dalrymple helped shift public opinion. Not only did Charles receive over a million dollars, Idaho passed the Wrongful Conviction Act, providing state compensation for others like him. Today, he's taking things one day at a time. A little rough at times, but I got through it. I bought me a house, a pickup, got me a pup. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of fishing since then. It was the color of Charles's hair and the rack from his footprint that got him locked up and DNA testing that set him free. But for Teresa Ingram, the mother you met at the beginning of this episode, there's no DNA to save the day. Her son's cases rely solely on two partial footprints. When I talked to them leading up to the trial, of course, they thought they were going to be able to come home. The jury came back in a little of no time. Good gracious, I would say it wasn't even 45 minutes. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Chris Paul is now an NBA legend, but back in 2002, he was still in high school. In December, 
a little over a month after his grandfather, Nathaniel Jones, was murdered, Paul scored 61 points in one game, one point for each year his grandfather was alive. It was a tribute to a man the whole community mourned, and it received national attention. It was a high-profile murder case. Around this time, law enforcement and prosecutors are gathering evidence to support their theory of the case, that five teenagers attacked Nathaniel Jones in his carport, tied him up, and left him to die of a heart attack. They had already searched Teresa Ingram's home, where her sons, Rayshon and Nathaniel, both lived. They went in and they searched rooms. They was gathering up, like, shoes and pants and all of this stuff. I told them it was okay, because, of course, I don't know, my sons didn't have anything to do with this. Law enforcement had footprints from the hood of Jones's car. They're looking for a matching shoe. Rayshon told detectives he was wearing Nike Air Force Ones the night of the murder. And so they took a bunch of shoes. I didn't know what the big thing was about the Nike Air Force Ones, but they got so popular and I thought they were cute and I even wanted some. So they had a lot of shoes. Police seized four pairs of Nike shoes from the home. Months later, in August 2004, the brothers, now 16 and 17 years old, are charged with first-degree murder and tried as adults. All five boys claim their confessions were coerced. Their attorneys try to suppress the confessions. The motion is denied. Then prosecutors offer a plea deal. They said, no, they already done told me about this. I'll be X amount of years when I get out of here. No, no, no. I'm not taking a plea bargain. I'm not saying I've done something and I didn't do it. He said, I will sit in this jail and I will rot before I take a plea bargain. Rashawn said, no, mama. He said, I'm not taking a plea bargain. So the trial moves forward with just that one key piece of physical evidence tying the brothers to the crime scene, Rayshawn's size 9 Nike Air Force Ones. Forensic print analyst Joyce Petska takes the stand. First, she gives the jury her expert credentials. This is a voice actor reading her testimony from the trial. I've testified approximately 85 times in fingerprints and approximately 39 in footwear. Then Petska explains her process. I received four different pairs of Nike athletic shoes. I also received 58 photographic frames, and I received 39 photographs. She created a known standard from Rayshon's shoe to compare with the questioned print or impression. I determined that one of the impressions, what could have been made, it was consistent in design, size, and wear with the right shoe and one of the impressions was consistent in design, size, and wear with the left shoe. But during cross-examination, Petska concedes that both the model and size of the shoe are very common. So popular, in fact, just days before the murder, rap star Nelly released the hit single, Air Force Ones. The year of the trial, 2004, an estimated 10 million pairs were sold. Given the limited detail of the shoe impressions and their popularity, Pezka admits under oath that another pair of Nike Air Force Ones could have produced the impression. Melissa Gegenbach points out that even if footwear analysts don't use conclusive language and admit that the shoe print could have been made by hundreds, if not thousands, of other shoes, 
their testimony as experts still makes the jury believe that there is something substantial linking the suspect to the scene. There's no standardization of what makes a match versus what is a non-match. So you get a lot of testimony that says something like, well, I've looked at the shoe print and I've looked at the shoe and there are some areas here of similarity. What does that mean? There's no statistic that you can apply to that. In closing arguments, the prosecution went even further, repeatedly arguing Rayshon's shoe was a match. It was definitely the shoe that left the print, even though their own expert conceded another shoe could have made it. The damage was done. Rayshon and Nathaniel were found guilty of first-degree murder. As the brothers were sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, their mother, Teresa, was in the courtroom. I seen Rayshon. Rayshon just dropped his head. Nathaniel just started crying. He stood up and he addressed the family. Sorry for what has happened to your father, is what he said. Then he addressed the jury and said, y'all got all my stuff, all my clothes, my shoes, y'all got everything down here, and y'all don't have anything on it. Their friends, Christopher, Jermall, and Durrell, were released in 2017 for time served. They had ultimately been convicted of lesser charges, second-degree murder. Durrell passed away in 2019. But Rayshon and Nathaniel are still in prison. They've been there 18 years. They could have been home by now if they'd agreed to the plea deal, and I'm sure they probably have often thought about that. They refuse to admit to the crime they say they did not do. I ain't going to say they accepted the life they got dealt with, but one certainly can deal with it a lot better than the other. Rayshon dealt with it better than Nathaniel did. In 2014, Nathaniel wrote a suicide note to his mother and brother in which he maintained his innocence before trying to end his life. According to prison records, it was his third attempt. But in 2020, the family gets another chance. Since 2007, the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission has reviewed over 3,000 cases, resulting in 15 exonerations. They agree to hear the case of the Winston-Salem Five. As part of their investigation, the Innocence Commission reviews thousands of pages of police reports and trial documents. They hear directly from Rayshon and Nathaniel. Here's Nathaniel talking to the committee about the confession he says he was coerced to give as a teenager. After my mother left and they came back in, it's like they used her against me when they were like, well, look, just tell us anything and we can let you go home. It, as a 15-year-old kid, and my mind is telling me, okay, I might as well go on and say I did it because these people is not going to let up. These people is not going to stop saying that I did something when I continuously tell you I didn't do it. And the friend who said she drove them to the scene of the crime? Her name is Jessica Black, and she came forward to recant her testimony, saying her confession was also coerced. I was so scared I was going to jail <laughs> until, like, I, I gave them the answer they wanted. They hear from an expert witness in footwear 
who, like in the original trial, opened up the possibility that another pair of Air Force Ones could have left the prints. This expert this week also testified that it is possible that another pair of Air Force One size 9 could have been the source of the impressions on the hood of the car, but they have to display the exact wear pattern characteristics. In other words, you couldn't go to the Foot Locker and get a pair of Air Force Ones size 9 that have never been worn necessarily and match that up. On March 13, 2020, five of the eight members of the commission concluded that there was sufficient evidence of factual innocence to merit judicial review. Fast forward to April 2022. Sean and Nathaniel's case goes before a three-judge panel who have the power to exonerate them. But under North Carolina law, the exoneration panel is bound by a high burden of proof, clear and convincing evidence of innocence. Footwear evidence again took center stage with testimony clarifying that Rayshon's Air Force Ones were very common and to claim a match was very misleading. After 20 years, Teresa barely dared to hope. I don't put all the eggs in one basket and say, oh yeah, they're coming home. Because at the end of the day, those three judges still got to have a unanimous vote. Yeah. With the victim's grandson, Chris Paul, being an NBA superstar, the media frenzy raised the stakes. On April 28, 2022, the three-judge panel voted to deny their claim on the grounds that revealing flaws in the case against them isn't the same thing as proving innocence. So the fight goes on the criminal justice system is like a one-way street built only to work in one direction. Overturning a conviction is nearly impossible. Nathaniel and Rayshon's attorney plans to continue to fight for their innocence. And Teresa can only stay strong for her boys. When I see them on the other side of the prison bars and the walls, that's when I will live. That's when I will be happy. Next time on CSI On Trial, Shaken Baby Syndrome. A pregnant mother who ran a daycare out of her home is wrongfully convicted of killing a child she was trying to help. I instantly picked her up, held her, was patting her on the back. She was not responding. That is when the police came, the ambulance came, and then it accelerated into a very nightmare day. CSI On Trial is a co-production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. Based on the Curiosity Stream series, CSI On Trial, created by Eleanor Grant and produced by The Biscuit Factory. You can watch all six episodes of the video series right now at curiositystream.com. This episode is hosted and written by me, Molly Herman, and researched by Katie Dunn and myself. Our producer is Miranda Hawkins. Jessica Metzger is the senior producer. Virginia Prescott, Jason English, Brandon Barr, and L.C. Crowley are the executive producers. Sound design and mix by Miranda Hawkins. 
Voice acting by Miranda Hawkins. Special thanks to John Higgins, Rob Burke, Rob Lyle, and Brandon Craigie. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app. Check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more. School of Humans. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. (sighs) Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Wednesday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. What if we told you about a major breakthrough on awesome savings on all-inclusive beach vacays? OMG, this could break the case. Case? I'm talking about CheapCaribbean.com. It's full of hot savings. At CheapCaribbean.com, score an extra $175 off site-wide on vacations of four nights or more now through June 3rd. Swim up bar in Punta Cana or dip your toes in the sand on the shores of Cancun. We gotta take this show on the road. Start at CheapCaribbean.com.